0: Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day, a united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders.
1: Woo. Society Builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders and thank you for joining the conversation for social transformation. Our last episode marks something of a transition in our narrative to date. Our first five episodes of the society building series really explored the roles of the plans in providing us with a sense of vision for the new society building road ahead. But our last episode was the first in a sequence of episodes that will now look back at our history of society building. Now in our last episode, we explored the impact which Abdu'l-Bahá and the generation he inspired had on really all modern social discourse, even today. Again, key constructs across discourses on race, the empowerment of women, world peace, the environment, governance, and so much more all trace their roots back to key contributions of the early Baha'i community. To some extent, this was because they were there at the crossroads at the genesis of the emergence of many of these nascent movements. We're talking about things like affirmative action, black pride, nonviolent approaches to civil rights, the Parents Teachers Association, tree planting, the global discourse on the environment, and so much more. I mean, it's truly remarkable to see just how impactful and enduring their influence was. And in our last episode, we heard short snippets from some of the world's leading Baha'i scholars commenting on these themes. But these short clips reflected just a few minutes of audio extracted from what were hours of recorded interviews. So there was so much detail that I couldn't include in an overview episode, but which I know that you would have found profoundly valuable. Clearly, there was so much more to tell, so I realized that we'd need a few episodes to help with each of the different themes we explored. And we start this new sequence today with a discussion about how Abdu'l-Bahá and the generation he inspired contributed to the discourse on governance with integrity, particularly in the context of political reform in Iran. As you'll discover, this played a critical role in the emergence of Iran's first democratic institutions. But the implications here are much broader than this Persian discourse. Because when you think about it, the whole idea of governance with integrity speaks directly to what is most broken about the political systems of our day. More than anything, we crave the idea of governance with integrity. It's what's most lacking in governance today. So today, we're going to explore abdul Baha's interaction with this discourse on governance, particularly this focus on governance with integrity. Now, because today's theme is so extensive, we're going to explore it across two episodes. Today's episode, part one of our series, will explore the background and context associated with the need for reform in Iran, and the counsel which abdul Baha provided primarily across two books that he wrote that address these themes. And our next episode will then explore how the Baha'i community of the day responded and shared this counsel with wider society, how they approached society building in their time, and the impact this ultimately had on wider Persian society. So it's an exciting adventure. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mujan Momen, who is truly the authority on the history of the early Iranian Baha'i community. He's author to numerous books, chapters, and articles on the early Iranian Baha'i community, and he's also one of the seminal scholars on Shia Islam. He's a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland, and he's the recipient of numerous awards in recognition of his scholarship. So we're incredibly fortunate to have Dr. Mujan Moman as our special guest today. Mujan Jan, welcome to Society Builders.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure, a somewhat over-effusive introduction to me, but there we go. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me to Society Builders, and uh, I hope we can learn a little bit about Abdu'l-Bahá's contributions in this area of of governance.
1: Yeah, thank you. So, Mujanjan, today we're going to talk a lot about Abdu'l-Bahá and his interaction with efforts to reform governance in Iran. But before we do, we probably need a little bit of background and context. So let's start talking about Abdu'l-Bahá and his interaction with the leaders of his day. As I understand it, this begins at a very young age for Abdu'l-Bahá, even from his time in Irdanay and Adrianople, where he began playing something of a secretary of state role for the nascent Baha'i community, facilitating his father's interaction with the governing leaders of his day. Help paint the picture.
2: Okay, well, prior to this time when they were in Irdanay, otherwise known as Adrianople. So in other words, in the time that they were in Baghdad, Bahá'u'lláh had freely mixed with the population in, in Baghdad. He would go to the cafes and talk to people and te- try to teach the faith there. And the person who had been taking care of the day-to-day business of the household, dealing with supplies, dealing with minor officials, uh, had been Bahá'u'lláh's brother Mirza Musa, because Abdu'l-Bahá was very young at that time. By the time they got to Edirne and during the time that they were there, Bahá'u'lláh no longer freely mixed with the population, but he did still meet with governors and other local officials from time to time if they requested uh, an interview. But increasingly in that time in Adrianople, it was Abdu'l-Bahá who took over the care of the day-to-day business of the household, dealing with supplies, dealing with minor officials and so forth.
1: And how old was Abdu'l-Bahá when, when he was in Adrianople taking on this role?
2: Well, at the time when they first arrived in, in Edirne, th- this was in right at the end of 1863, uh, Abdu'l-Bahá would have been just 19 years old. He, he was still very young. He was still a teenager when they first arrived. And then finally, when they got to Acre, when the exiles were finally exiled to Acre, Baha'u'llah no longer met either with the population in general or even with any officials. And so, Abdu'l-Bahá took over all of the interactions of the community with the outside world, including even governors and officials. So he was dealing with both the sort of the governor at the sort of higher level of the interactions with the local officials, but also with minor officials, uh, day-to-day business, organizing supplies for the household, all of these sorts of things. He was he was the person who, who was in charge of all of that. And then, as the years rolled by after the passing of Bahá'u'lláh, when Abdu'l-Bahá became the leader of the. Baha'i community in the Akka area. As far as the outside world was concerned, as far as the officials and so on were concerned, nothing much had changed because they'd been dealing with Abdu'l Baha before and they were continuing to deal with Abdu'l Baha afterwards. Abdu'l Baha always tried to get on well with with local officials and, and governors and so on. He always tried to play a positive role in the community, making constructive suggestions. Some of the governors were hostile to the Baha'is and and tried to cause problems for them because of religious and other reasons. But those governors who were willing to listen to Abdul Baha and, and take his advice found that it was very helpful and it was always constructive and always helped them with what they were doing.
1: So we can see from our discussion thus far that Abdu'l-Bahá was highly engaged in interacting with the civic leaders of his day. But this begins taking a new focus really around a very specific discourse. And here, of course, I'm referring to the discourse on political reform in Iran. Now, before we can discuss this, we need to first understand why there was a need for reform in the first place. So here again, we need a little bit of background and context. Mujanjan, can you please help understand why there was this need for reform at the time?
2: Okay, so we're talking about Iran in the last half of the 19th century, and Iran wasn't Alone in this, many countries had the same problem, that they were trying to catch up with modernity. They still had basically in place a medieval, feudal, social and political structure. So it was like the king owned the country. He had absolute authority to do whatever he wanted in the country. And obviously, he raised taxes by decree, but there were more questionable practices going on that Were sort of conducive to corruption so for example he would sell governorships and ministerial positions to individuals and so therefore it was not the most capable person who would get the job but the person who could raise the money to buy the position and that person would then try to recoup the money he had spent and also make a profit and so They would then sort of tax the people under them. They would sell positions to people in the area they were governing and so on. So the whole system became very run down and corrupt simply because it was not based on ability. It was based on money. And so people who are not capable were in charge of ministerial positions and local governors and so on. And uh, not surprisingly, they didn't do a very good job of governing. So there was a a great deal of of corruption and just poor governing. And the Shah was constantly trying to raise money to cover his increasingly extravagant lifestyle.
1: Now, of course, we know that Baha'u'llah himself was very active in engaging with this discourse, you know, seeking change here, particularly in his famous tablet to the Persian king and and to other tablets as well. But I guess the king and the royal court really didn't heed his advice very
2: much. (laughs) Yes, Baha'u'llah, starting from the 1860s onwards, started to address the kings and leaders of the world. And he would give them advice on on the subject of governance and, and the way they should organize their society, their country that they were rulers over. So, for example, in his tablet, to Queen Victoria, he strongly commended Queen Victoria and the British government in the moves they had taken towards democracy. Um, and in his writings, he recommended that a conference of world leaders should be convened that would fix the boundaries of every country and then guarantee these boundaries by a treaty, creating a pact of collective security whereby all the countries would collectively guarantee the borders of each country. Then if they managed to do this, he said, this would lead to a reduction in the need for armaments and the benefits of that could then be passed on in the form of expenditure on education, infrastructure, and other benefits to the country. So, Bahá'u'lláh himself was giving a great deal of advice to to the kings and rulers about how to organize society.
1: So, the king rejected Bahá'u'lláh's message ultimately, and and this is where Abdu'l-Bahá enters into the picture. Now, most of the writings we have of Abdu'l-Bahá, of course, are either compilations of his tablets to believers or they're compilations of talks he gave or transcripts of interviews he gave. But Abdu'l-Bahá actually wrote three books, The Secret of Divine Civilization, you know, The Traveler's Narrative, and his Treatise on Politics. All three of these books discuss this governance theme. I mean, even Traveler's narrative, which is you know primarily historical, even that concludes with this focus on governance. So let's start with the first of these, of course, The Secret of Divine Civilization, a book most Baha'is are already well acquainted with. Why did Abdu'l-Baha write this book? How did it engage with the discourse of governance in Iran?
2: Yes, this book was uh, written in 1875, so Abdu'l-Bahá would have been 31 at that time. And he wrote this treatise addressed to the people of Iran in general, but especially those who were interested in in and engaged with the question of governance in Iran and and the question of reform of of the governance of Iran. And to understand the context for this uh, at that time in 1875, we need to review the history of the country if if we go back a couple of hundred years to the 16th and 17th centuries iran had been a, one of the world superpowers if you like at that time this was at the time of the safavid dynasty the splendors of the court of the safavid monarch at that time was was one of the sort of most magnificent courts in the world and travelers would come from all around the world to Iran to set up trade and to set up treaties and so on. And then at the beginning of the 18th century, disaster set in, the Safavid dynasty fell from power, there was an invasion of the country by Afghans, there was civil war, there was disorder through the whole of the 18th century. And then at the beginning of the 19th century, there were two wars with Russia and one with Britain, which brought home to the people of Iran how far behind they had fallen. Even only a hundred years earlier, they'd been at the sort of forefront of civilization, one of the leading countries in the world. And now, 120, 30 years later, they were being defeated by Russia and comprehensively defeated. And as a result of those defeats, they lost large amounts of land in the Caucasus region, Armenia and what's now the country of Azerbaijan. They lost those to Russia. And so this sparked a debate in Iran about what should be done. How are we going to get back to being a modern power, a significant power in the world again? And this book that Abdu'l-Bahar wrote, Secret of Divine Civilization, was a contribution to the debate that was going on. And the, the, the debate that was going on was basically between those who wanted to push for modernization, and they saw this mainly as being an importing of the political structures, laws, and the education that was going on in the West at that time. And then on the other side, there were those who resisted this and wanted to cling on to tradition, traditional forms of government and traditional laws and education systems and so on. So the reformers were calling for radical reform of Iran's political system, its legal system, and its educational system. And Abdu'l-Bahar's book was a contribution to that debate. The specific context for the book was that, and the reason it was written at that, Particular time because this discussion, this debate had been going on really from the, the early part of the century when, when they had Iran had suffered these defeats. But specifically in 1875, well, just a couple of years earlier, a certain person called Miza Hossein Khan al Dole had first been an ambassador in Istanbul, but then between 1870 and 73, he had become prime minister and he had tried to carry out reforms and As part of this, he'd even taken Nasiruddin Shah in 1873 on a tour around Europe to show him what Europe was like and and what he was trying to achieve in Iran in trying to raise Iran to the level of standard of civilization that, that the West had achieved, that Europe had achieved. So this book written in 1875 was a, a contribution to this debate that was going on in Iran because Moshira Doleh had come up against these traditionalist opposers of reform. And that in fact, by 1875, he was no longer the prime minister. He was still a minister and he was still there at the center of affairs, but he'd had a major setback and the reforms were looking on the ropes, as it were, that it was questionable whether he was going to be able to continue with, with what he had planned. So Abdu'l-Bahar brought out this book. And what was the focus
1: in, in Secret of Divine Civilization? What what was the message which Abdu'l-Bahá was conveying?
2: As far as the contents of Secret of Divine Civilization is concerned, Abdu'l-Bahá discusses a number of subjects on the reform agenda that was being discussed by others as well. And he lists a number of measures that needed to be taken. Uh, many of these are also in the treatises of others who are discussing these matters at that time, for example, universal education, legal reforms, the development of trade, the arts, uh, sciences, and so on, the guaranteeing of individual rights to security of property, equality before the law of every individual, trying to eliminate corruption in in the society and the setting up of councils and uh, particularly councils of ministers uh, as a way of running the country rather than just by the decree of the Shah. So, abdul Baha mentions all of these things in his treatise. but as I say the, these were things that the other reformers were also talking about. What sets Abdul Bahar's treatise apart from the other people who are discussing reform and what sets Abdul Bahar apart Abdul Bahar's treatise apart from those other treatises are also just as relevant today as they were that uh, they're relevant today to the whole world just as much as they were to Iran in the end of the 19th century. Much of abdul Baha's treatise is taken up with this proposition that reforms, no matter how far-reaching and well-thought they are, will have no beneficial effect unless there's an underlying moral and spiritual transformation of the individuals in that society. The true foundations of civilization, abdul Baha maintains, and not to be found in political ideologies or in lists of political and social reforms, such as the ones that the other reformers were discussing. Reform and progress can only come about if the individual members of a society are motivated towards justice, high-mindedness, and other virtues. So, for example, Abdu'l-Bahar, in that treatise, advocates the free elections Of the members of the consultative assemblies, the parliaments. And you have to remember at this time, the other Iranian reformers were not talking about elections to parliaments. They were just talking about having a council of ministers appointed by the king to advise the king. There was no talk about general democracy in in Iran at this time. And you have to remember that even Most European states at that time didn't have a representative democracy. Pretty well, only England and maybe some of the Scandinavian countries in Europe, and of course, the United States in in North America had democracies. And even then, they weren't democracies in the sense that we would think of a democracy today. The suffrage was limited to men, so women were completely excluded. And in most places, the vote was given to men with property. So we're talking about maybe 5 or 10% of the population. So even in those countries where there was democracy, it was a very limited democracy. And yet, Abdu'l-Bahar talks about, in effect, everyone having the vote. And he goes on to say that this is so that members can be elected to these assemblies. But then he says, if they be not righteous, God-fearing, high-minded, incorruptible, then the desired results will not be achieved. So he's going back to this idea that you have to have individuals who have these qualities before even a democracy will work. So then, having discussed this idea that without moral and and spiritual transformation, you're not going to progress, he then talks about how you can achieve this individual moral and spiritual transformation. And he says that this is, best achieved through religion because it provides the motivation for individuals to disregard their own advantage and advance justice in society and be of service to the public interest. And so he comes to this idea of religion being the main motive for progress and the advancement of civilization, particularly if that religion is the cause of unity and agreement between the individual members of society. And religion is the best way of achieving that unity. So that's a, a summary of the contents of the book. Of course, there are lots of other things that Abdu'l-Bahar deals with in that book. For example, he makes a list of the qualities that are required for individuals who are going to be public servants, who are going to be either civil servants or are going to be members of the uh, parliaments or members of, of the consultative assemblies and so forth. So there are other issues as well, but th- those are the main things that he writes about.
1: You see this longing even today for this idea of governance with integrity.
2: Yes. As I say, this book of Abdu'l-Bahaz was written a long time ago now, uh, 150 years ago or more. And yet, you know, the the themes that he deals with, the issues that he brings up are just as relevant today as, as they were at that time.
1: Now, Secret of Divine Civilization got incredibly wide distribution throughout Iranian society. How did that occur?
2: Well, Abdu'l-Bahá very wisely decided to publish this anonymously. He says in the introduction that the, the reason he's doing this is that he was, he's not seeking any position for himself or any fame or anything. He's doing this as a service to the people of Iran. And he published it anonymously because if he published it in his own name, if it became known that this was a book that the Baha'is were promulgating, it would probably have been completely ignored. But because he published it anonymously, and it was one of the very earliest books that the Baha'i community in Iran actually got printed and, and published, they got it printed in, in India. They, the Baha'is weren't able to publish books in Iran itself, but they got it printed in India and then distributed in Iran. And because it was anonymous and because in the book, Abdu'l-Bahá makes no mention of the Baha'i faith at all. The Baha'is were able to distribute it. And because it was a, a useful and positive contribution to the debate that was going on, then obviously it had a great deal of appeal. And we know that it was read quite widely because we, we find it in the book in collections of, of treatises on reform that were collected. And even though it was anonymous, it, it's referred to. So we know it was read. I mean, it's difficult to know how widely it was read and how influential it was. But it certainly was in the debate.
1: Now, let's jump forward to the third book which Abdu'l-Bahá wrote, the Treatise on Politics. I think it's fair to say that most Baha'is, at least in the West particularly, aren't really even aware that this book exists because it hasn't yet been officially translated into English. Now, the World Center tells us that the release of this translated version is imminent, so that's something I think we can all really look forward to. And in these two episodes, we'll get a little bit of a glimpse about what that book is really about. And it's a book that seems to have particular relevance to the circumstances of our time today, as you'll discover as we explore its themes. So this book, the treatise on politics, directly intersects with the reform process in Iran around the turn of the century, a process that ultimately gave rise to Iran's first democratic institutions. Mujanjan, can you please tell us more about the treatise? Help us better understand the background and context to it. What were the circumstances which led Abdu'l-Bahá to write this follow-up really to The Secret of Divine Civilization?
2: The, the context for abdul Baha writing this treatise came about because the Shah of Iran had been running a really extravagant lifestyle. He was spending money on a huge scale, and the particular thing that he was doing was going on foreign trips with a large retinue, which cost a huge amount of money. And it was more money than what he could raise in the way of taxes and sales of governorships and this sort of thing that that was his usual way of raising money. So he began selling off national assets to foreigners. He would sell off, for example, mining rights, the right to mine resources in the country. He would sell off the right to build a railroad. He would sell off the rights to navigation on particular rivers. This was the sort of thing that, that was happening. And the particular thing that sparked off a lot of protests was when he sold the right to the cultivation and processing and sale of of tobacco in 1890 to a, a, a British entrepreneur called Major Talbot. The thing was that the previous sales of concessions to things like mining and building of railroads didn't really affect people very much. But tobacco affected a large percentage of the population because there were a large number of people engaged in growing the tobacco, in processing the tobacco, in selling the tobacco, and a very large portion of the population smoked tobacco. So this concession, which was inevitably going to lead to a rise in the price of tobacco, because whatever the price of tobacco was, the person who who won this concession was going to have to make profits on top of that in order to pay for the large amount of money that he paid to buy the concession in the first place. So it was inevitably going to lead to a rise in the in the price of tobacco. And as I say, a, a very large proportion of the population was smoking tobacco at this time, not in cigarettes as, as you would do in the West today, but through these Hubble bubble pipes or hookahs, as some people call them, devices that burn the tobacco. And then you inhale the smoke through water. That that was the usual way of of consuming tobacco. So a large proportion of the population smoked and they they were all very outraged that this concession was inevitably going to lead to a rise in the price of tobacco. And there started to be protests in the streets about this. Now, in the preceding decades, the Shah had silenced all of the main political reformers, such as Malcolm Khan and Sayyid Jamaluddin, and had exiled them from the country. So, leadership of these protests fell to the clergy, and they eventually forced the Shah to abandon this tobacco concession or tobacco regime, as it's sometimes called. And this, together with a, a couple of other similar successes over other concessions, gave the clergy a a taste for power. And some of them began to write in terms of the idea that as they were the deputies of the hidden imam, the the, the imam Mahdi, who they believed was in hiding, but they were his deputies, they were the more rightful rulers of the country than the Shah was. So they started to broach these ideas. And Abdu'l-Bahá was responding to this situation in Iran when he wrote this treatise.
1: So Mujanjan, since most of us haven't been able to read the treatise on politics directly since it's not yet translated, maybe you could give us a quick summary of what the contents of this treatise is about.
2: Yes, it's uh, it's a, it's quite a short treatise. It's not a it's not a lengthy work, and. Basically what Abdu'l-Bahar does after referring to the problems that were going on in Iran at the time is that he lays down a couple of principles. First of all, he warns about the fact that the clerical class, the the religious leaders, are not fit people to govern a country. Their their training is in the obscure aspects of, of the holy law and their training doesn't make them fit for governance. And then he points out that in the history of Iran, every time these religious leaders have come to the fore and have interfered in politics, the results for Iran have been disastrous. He gives several examples, one of which, for example, was the war that Iran fought with Russia at the beginning of the 19th century. The clerics insisted on this war being fought. They put out fatwas of jihad and they called for jihad and they pestered the crown prince and the king to initiate this war. And the result was disastrous for Iran. Iran lost a large amount of territory, maybe a third the amount of the present land area of Iran it lost in the Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and so on. So that's just one of three or four examples he gives. And then he lays down the principle that really the religious leaders should stick to the moral guidance of the people, that they should stick to giving religious guidance. And he calls for a sort of separation, as it were, the religious leaders should stick to religious matters and leave the political leaders to to get on with, with governing. And then he also talks a little bit about the fact that, you know, at that time, there was a a lot of political agitation going on. And he advises that in effect, he says that, you know, this is not the best way of going about getting improvement in the country. Not it's not the best way of reforming. It's not the best way of achieving your aims, that it requires order for society to progress and causing disorder. It never brings about a better state of affairs it just leads to more and more disorder so he talks a little bit about sort of conflict in society and conflict between nations and, and how these things are not conducive to the advancement of civilization those are the main themes really in in their book
1: So, Mujanjan, this is probably a good place for us to pause in our story. I, I know it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, you've done a great job in laying down the foundation for our discussions today, giving us the background and historical context behind Abdu'l-Bahá authoring these two seminal works, the, the Secret of Divine Civilization and this Treatise on Politics. So if it's okay with you, Mujanjan, we'll continue our discussion in our next episode.
2: Yes, I hope to continue the discussion. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: So we'll continue with our story in our next episode part two of our discussion where we'll explore more about how the baha'i community of the day engaged in society building sharing this council with wider society and we'll explore its ultimate impact in helping shape the emergence of iran's first democratic institutions so again i want to thank you mujanjan but also i want to thank our audience thank you for joining us today and don't forget to tune into part two of our journey on this theme of governance with integrity. That's next time on Society Builders.
0: Society Builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity People suffer from a lack of unity It's time for a better path to a new society Join a conversation for social transformation Society Builders builders. Join a conversation for social transformation Society Builders So engage with the local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builder. The social transformation Society builders The Bahai faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation for social transformation, Society Builders. Society Builders. Join a conversation for social transformation, Society Builders.